0: We are turning to Leviticus chapter 21, and we may make our way considerably through Leviticus 22 as well. And uh, that is not uncommon. We saw that with chapter 19 and chapter 20. One of the things that we have noted before, and we will note again, is a rather significant amount of instructional repetition. And we look at this, and we sometimes just have to wonder, why does this have to be said again? And and it's not again as in just the same instructions and laws and commandments and statutes and inst- the requirements again. It's, oh, now we are talking about the priesthood, but that means we've got to go back to the sacrifice again. So why so much again and again? Well, it's easy to look at this and say, well, it has to be because Israel is a uniquely hard-hearted, short-memoried people. But I think there's a lot to it beyond that. And, and, and by the way, the first answer, I guess, to why this has to happen might be asked by a child but can easily be answered by a parent. In other words, we have to tell our children the same things over and over and over Again which meant that we as children had to be told the same things over and over and over again. And uh, knowledge in that way, even in just the simple parent-child relationship, is cumulative because in the beginning of the relationship, you do not explain to children the theory of the thing. You just give a simple instruction. They do not need to know the difference between direct and alternating current for you to tell them not to stick a fork in the electrical outlet. (laughs) They don't need to know about the theory of heat conductivity in order to tell them don't touch the stove. And then at some point, it does become a little more necessary for the child growing into maturity to have some reason as to why the thing is the thing. Amazingly, we as adults grab a hold of a hot pot. We do stupid stuff stuff we were told not to do when we were two. It has to be deeper than that. It must be that Israel has to be reminded, for one thing, of both the role of the priest and the reality of the sacrifice in such a way that it's not just the priesthood that takes responsibility, but the people. That that has to be another part of this. So the people must know all of this. This is not like, An inside, quiet, confidential briefing for the priests, for Aaron and his sons. This is for all of Israel to know. In this sense, it is sort of like Israel being told about the alternating and direct current. In other words, they can know the big picture, they can know the reason, they can know the specifics. None of this would have to be opaque to them. So look at chapter 21. We'll begin in verse 1. And the Lord said to Moses, speak to the priests, the sons of Aaron, and say to them. Now, remember that there's something else going on here that is subtle in the sense that most Christians tend to miss it. So let me ask you a question. We're just one verse into this. You say, you you thought this was going to go pretty fast, and you're in one verse, and you're stuck there. Well, it's because there's something here we don't want to miss. So when we speak of Jesus and we speak of the offices that he holds and the functions that he infinitely fulfills, we sometimes refer to Jesus as the something between God and man. What's that something? The mediator, yes. uh, He is the mediator, and he's defined as the mediator, as the great high priest, by the way. Hold that. But Jesus isn't the only mediator in Scripture. He's the only saving mediator, but he's not the only mediator. Moses is a mediator between God and Israel constantly. God speaks to Moses. God doesn't speak directly to Israel. God speaks to Moses. God sometimes lets Israel know that he is speaking to Moses by sending supernatural signs. God will give his presence to Israel in a column of fire. God will make very clear that he is speaking to Moses and he will declare that he has spoken to Moses. Moses mediates the word of God. But what's really interesting here is that when it comes to the priesthood, the priesthood needs a mediator. So we're one verse in and here's something that the book of Hebrews will clarify concerning Christ's High priestly role, his infinitely perfect priestly role, Moses needs a mediator. Moses is a mediator. In this case, he functions as a mediator. The Lord speaks to him and tells him to speak to Aaron. Speak to the priests, the sons of Aaron, and say to them, no one shall make himself unclean For the dead among the people, except for his closest relatives, his mother, his father, his son, his daughter, his brother, or his virgin sister who is near to him because she has had no husband, for he may make himself unclean. For her, he may make himself unclean. He shall not make himself unclean as a husband among his people and so profane himself. They shall not make bald patches on their heads, nor shave off the edges of their beards, nor make any cuts on their body. They shall be holy to their God and not profane the name of their God, for they offer the Lord's food offerings, the bread of their Lord, it's uh, translated here, the bread of their God, therefore they shall be holy. They shall not marry a prostitute or a woman who has been defiled, neither shall they marry a woman divorced from her husband, for the priest is holy to his God. You shall sanctify him, for he offers the bread of your God. He shall be holy to you, for I, the Lord, who sanctify you, am holy." And the daughter of any priest, if she profanes herself by whoring, profanes her father, she shall be burned with fire. Well, You look at this and you say, it may be a while since you've read this passage. Here it is in all of its shocking intensity. The Lord is to speak to Aaron and to the sons of Aaron saying, first of all, you can't hang around with corpses. You can't make yourself unclean for the dead, but there are exceptions. The priest may make himself unclean for the dead in the case of the death of a close relative, and then it's defined again. So we, this is not something left to the imagination, to the hermeneutical you know, uh, determination. No, this is listed specifically. Closest relatives mean father, mother, son, daughter, brother, or virgin sister. So, so what is this? What, what, what is this clean and unclean? Maybe you have some Jewish friends. And uh, they, after experiencing the death of a loved one, sit Shiva. This has become as much Yiddish as anything else, just in terms of Eastern European Uh, influences, but, uh, but nonetheless, this is respect for the dead, and it is a being with the dead, and it includes funeral and bodily preparation steps that require touching the dead. Touching the dead makes one unclean. The priest cannot be unclean. Now, there's another problem here. You're talking about Aaron and his sons, And remember that they are married, and and the the marital rules come almost immediately after the death rules. But they are married, they have children, they are parts of large families, they're part of a tribe. And as a part of this tribe of priests, and as the sons of Aaron, they have familial responsibilities but they have a superior responsibility as priests. Israel depends upon the priesthood. It absolutely depends upon the priesthood, to the extent that God Himself will define Israel as a kingdom of priests. Now we're just hold that thought because we're going to turn to the modern era and ask some hard questions in just a moment. But right now, what we need to consider is that Israel has to have a priest more than a dead relative needs a family member to attend to the dead. There's another problem and that is that in the ancient world there was so much death so early. And frankly that goes all the way into the 18th and 19th centuries. Uh, Two things changed longevity. One of them was the rise of modern medicine and the other was the increase of calories in the diet. Both of those things turned out to be transformative in terms of human longevity, such that very few people uh, lived into an eighth or ninth decade, very, very few. Fewer men, by the way, there's another problem when you have the sons of Aaron as the priests, for some reason, lots of reasons, part of them genes, part of them uh, life-related, and oh. Part of them probably having to do with intelligence, I mean that in terms of operational things and calculation of risk, men tend to die earlier than women. By the way, I read the other day that the, the biggest distinction in uh, the, the survival of adolescent males and adolescent females was the ability to calculate risk. And this goes all the way back. It's not just like two teenagers in the 50s dragging their, you know, their Chevrolets on a country road. Evidently, it goes back to you know the 4th century BC with two 15-year-old boys looking at each other and saying, hey, watch this. <laughs> but the point is that there's a lot of death. And when death is communal and it's familial, uh, familial, <laughs> Uh, it, it, it means that you've got a lot of responsibilities. The priest has to reduce those responsibilities. The priest has to have only a few responsibilities. But those few responsibilities are clear. When it comes to the death of a close relative, and again, that is defined, it was defined for sexual relations, just a matter of a few verses previous. Now it's defined for death. But then something else comes. In verse 4, he shall not make himself unclean as a husband among his people and so profane himself. That's a strange verse, just kind of out of the blue. It's just a reminder of the absolute necessity of the priest being morally clean, even ritually and liturgically clean. But then comes a verse that may seem very strange in verse 5. They shall not make bald patches on their heads nor shave off the edges of their beards nor make any cuts on their body. You say, well, how did that become a temptation? Well, one of the things that was common in ancient idolatry and in various forms of ancient paganism is that the priests of those pagan religions would mark themselves with, with identifiable marks. Now, you say, well, that's very strange. Who would do that? How did it ever come about? Well, if you were to go, for instance, to medieval Europe, and you were to look for, say, uh, the different orders of monks and uh, different uh, Catholic orders, you would find a difference when, uh, when Martin Luther joined uh, a group of friars as a young man and uh, entered into... Uh, basically what we would call a monastic life, he had to receive the tonsure. The the tonsure meant that his head was shaved at the top. So there was a ring of hair, very elegant haircut, by the way. There was a a ring of hair that just surrounded the head, but the top of the head was made absolutely clean. And so you could see a friar... Coming from afar off, in a far more serious way, dealing directly with pagan idolatry, you go to 1 Kings 18 in the battle of the gods, and one of the things you see is that when Elijah says, let's build two altars, we'll build an altar, you build an altar, we'll take wood from the same tree, and we'll see who sends the fire. Will it be Baal, or will it be Yahweh, the God of Israel? You know Elijah goes first in the sense of building the the altar and and yet then they turn and taunt the the prophets of Baal, okay, let Baal send God And remember Elijah had filled the he not he had stacked the deck by watering the wood that God would set on fire, building a trench around it filled with water and he just turns to the ...to the prophets of Baal and says, okay, let let it fall. Well, then they danced around the altar. The priests of Baal danced around the altar, but nothing happened. And then remember what they did? They started slicing their bodies. They started cutting their bodies so that the blood would flow. It is a ritual I have not seen, but I have seen enacted. That was enough in Israel... And, and you just look at this, you realize they just cover themselves with blood in order to supposedly satiate Baal or get Baal's attention or placate him so that he would answer their prayer. Also, you have scarifications. And uh, the, the, my introduction to scarifications came when I was 18 and a, a first-year student at Stanford University. It's a long story, but a friend, and remember this is way before the internet, do not look at me wondering how this could have happened to me. I had a friend who who had started Samford a year earlier. He said we needed to get to Samford a few days before the semester started so that we could get a good dorm room. He had been there a year, I assumed he knew what he was talking about. Turned out he wanted to get there a few days earlier to see his girlfriend. But nonetheless, I got a great dorm room <laughs> corner room there was no air conditioning back then but that meant you had windows on two sides so it was and it, it was good it was good but i was the only not the only new early arriving student there was another student who was there new and uh, he was as old as my father and he was from nigeria and he was there because the mission board had brought him so that he could study. He was the pastor of the First Baptist Church of Lagos, Nigeria. He was a dear, dear man who became a friend, uh, his name was Yoel Ojimola. And he had tribal scarifications. He was born into a tribe and he was marked as a warrior of the tribe. And the scars were on his face and on his arms, and they were clearly a matter of art and a matter of marking, and I'll never forget the man who became a very dear friend, and by the way, just last year, a man came up to me and said, uh, he's a student at Southern Seminary, and he'd been led to the Lord and baptized by Joel Ojemola uh, there in, uh, in Nigeria. It's a very sweet thing. But anyway, you look at that, and and that is not a Christian practice. That was a pagan practice. He was converted to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But in the ancient world, it was often a priestly sign, not just a warrior sign. It was a priestly sign. And again, the idea is, if I see you and I see your body, I know you are a priest. The, The body is to have set you apart in such a way that your priesthood is reflected in your body. And you have here the Lord through Moses, telling the priests of Israel, I'm not to look at your body and see a tattoo. I'm not to look at your body and see scarification. You you are to keep yourselves from that. You are not to defile yourselves with a bald patch on your head, nor shave off the edges of your beards, nor make any cuts on the body. And then the the principle becomes clear in verse 6 they shall be holy to their God and not profane the name of their God, for they offer the Lord's food offerings, the bread of their God, therefore they shall be holy. Now remember, we had just seen that wonderful declaration. The Lord said, I am holy, therefore you must be holy. This is a holiness structure. And it just reminds us of something else. Left to our own, we'd have no idea what holiness is supposed to look like. And so you look at certain practices and, uh, you know, you you look at, I can remember as a boy going with my parents to see the movie The Sound of Music. And, uh, you know, Rogers and Hammerstein, Julie Andrews, uh, you know, in that role, I thought she was just wonderful. I was just at the age where I thought, oh, wow, she's wonderful. Uh... But, uh, and, and sweet, she was sweet. Remember, the, uh, the previous person who had watched the children was mean. And along comes, you know, she, what was she? She was a nun. She was a failed nun. Not, not failed as in fallen, but failed as in just not good at nunning. Uh, that was a part of the thing. She was a young girl, she'd given herself. But the idea is, how does that happen? And you look in the, you, then you, you, you I, I didn't know anything about who a nun was, or that was part of the puzzlement of the whole thing. But, it turns out that in the European world, in particular, in, in Christendom, especially through the medieval period, but continuing even to fairly recent centuries, and it, as recently as what was depicted there in Germany, Austria, uh, the idea is that these orders, whether they be the friars or the, or, or, or the monks on the male side or the various orders of nuns and other religious orders on the female side, the idea was that those would be where the holy people would go. Now, I just want to suggest, I don't think that was God's intention. But if all you're told is you are to be holy, and it's left up to you, or it's left up to me to try to determine what that has to look like, then we will develop orders of this and orders of that. And and we will try to come up with, even as you see among the Pharisees, especially in the New Testament, we'll come up with efforts to try to figure out how we are to demonstrate this holiness. And then, of course, if, if, it's, if it's up to us, then it's not going to be good enough to be holy. We're going to have to be holier. And so, then again, you get the Pharisees who, who tithe even what is not required and do so ostentatiously. The point here is that the priests are not left to define what holy looks like. That's good for us. It turns out we're not good at it. Turns out the priests need God to define what holy looks like. They have to be holy because they're going to be leading in sacrifices, presiding over sacrifices must be holy, and this goes back to the sexuality and the sexual activity and the holiness to be reflected there. In verse 7, they shall not marry a prostitute or a woman who has been defiled, neither shall they marry a woman divorced from her husband. So, that goes back a very long way. And just to be clear, because the Bible here is exceedingly clear, and you see this reflected also in the New Testament... The priest is not to be united in the conjugal act with a woman who has engaged in the conjugal act with any other, period. It's just very clear. You shall sanctify him, for he offers the bread of your God. He shall be holy to you, for I, the Lord, who sanctify you, am holy. And the daughter of any priest, if she profanes herself by whoring, profanes her father. So this is this is a priestly family, and uh, the penalty for the daughter of a priest who goes a whoring is fire. Verse ten: The priest who is chief among his brothers, on whose head the anointing oil is poured. So this is this is the one who who is the the high priest, and who is been consecrated to wear the garments, shall not let the hair of his head hang loose or tear his clothes. Very interesting. There is just something into the head. Head of his hair hang loose. So in other words, he's, he's to be tidy, but the hair, who, the hair that might be less clean than another part of the body is also not to touch the garments in this sense. But, but what about this, this other part? What, what about this other part where we are told that uh, he's not to tear his clothes Well, one thing we see here is that the priestly mediation is a partial mediation in more ways than one. So the priest has a priestly function to mediate. So even as Moses mediates the word to the priest, lots of mediation going on here. The priests mediate the sacrifice. They're not, in this sense to give themselves to the emotion, even the emotion of the extreme confession of sin and tearing clothes. And this could be, in this context, it could be either to extreme grief or extreme remorse and repentance. The priest can't do that. Other men can do that. Other men perhaps should do that. But not the priest who is presiding, and in this case we are told the one who would lead the priesthood. He just can't do that. Furthermore, he shall not go into any dead bodies or make himself unclean even for his father or for his mother. So this means that when you are looking at the chief among the priests, he can't even take care of the body of a mother or a father because Israel can't exist without a priesthood. So you'll notice what's going on here when it comes to the sexual relatedness, when it comes to the defilement with the dead, when it comes to other issues that will arise as we shall see. The singular priest who is chief among his brothers, the sons of Aaron, he can't even attend to the dead when the dead is his own mother or father because Israel just can't be without a priesthood. He shall not go out of the sanctuary, lest he profane the sanctuary of his God, for the consecration of the anointing oil of the God, of God is on him. I am the Lord, and he shall take a wife and her virginity, a widow or a divorced woman. This adds widow, very important here. So this priest cannot even marry a widow, which means this is not an issue of legitimacy. It's just a, a matter of exclusivity. or a divorced woman, or a woman who's been defiled, or a prostitute, these he shall not marry. May he shall take as his wife a virgin of his own people, that he may not profane his offspring among his people, for I am the Lord who sanctifies him. Even more interesting, in verse 16, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron, saying, None of your offspring throughout their generations who has a blemish may approach to offer the bread of his God. For no man who has a blemish shall draw near... A man, blind or lame, or one who has a mutilated face, or a limb too long, or a man who has an injured foot or an injured hand, or a hunchback or a dwarf, or a man with a defect in his sight, or an itching disease, or scabs or crushed testicles. No man of the offspring of Aaron the priest who has a blemish shall come near to offer the Lord's food offerings since he has a blemish. He shall not come near to offer the bread of his God. He may eat the bread of his God, both of the things most holy and of the holy things, but he shall not go through the veil or approach the altar because he has a blemish, that he may not profane my sanctuaries, for I am the Lord who sanctifies them. So Moses spoke to Aaron and to his sons and to all the people of Israel. This explains what you may have wondered about, which are some of the very personal questions we ask on the application form to students who would enroll in the Master of Divinity program at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Do you have any itching diseases? (laughs) Any deficiency in sight? Is one leg longer than the other? And how are your testicles? (laughs) You look at this and you, you just are astounded because this runs counter to everything that is our moral instinct or our zone of personal privacy. But the priesthood has no zone of personal privacy. First of all, there's very little personal privacy in all of Israel as a matter of fact, just for one thing, because of the of the mode of life. It's like I tell people, only when you have a rather modern situation and people have enough money to have a house with different rooms do you have to have, the sex talk with your children. Otherwise, they're fairly aware at a certain age, aware of all kinds of things. That In the 19th century, would the, the, uh, the revolution and what would have been called the bourgeois style of life, which means the rise of the middle class, it raised all kinds of questions because people didn't see a lot of things they'd seen before. And then, of course, you had the Victorian modesty that even put cloth coverings on piano legs lest they be seductive. You look at Israel here. Why? What would explain this? Well, if you're just looking for the simplest explanation, it is this Israel's survival depends upon God's wrath being held back. The covenant God made with Israel is a covenant of priests and sacrifices. You have to have a priest, which is one of the reasons why, in this same chapter, we've just been told. But the chief among the priests, the senior among the priests, cannot even attend to the dead when it's his own mother and father because Israel can't be without a priest. Another priest can take time off. Another priest can go through the process. Given the limitations, he can be cleansed after a time of being unclean. The, the chief priest, he can't. He just can't. The high priest can't. But what about, the, what about these physical infirmities? This doesn't sound right. This, this isn't in accord with the Americans with Disabilities Act. This isn't in accord with our, with our sense of fair. Of but the point is, go back to the sacrifice. Go back to the sacrifice. What animal is allowable for sacrifice? One without blemish. One that has no infirmity the best from the herd, the flock. And you can say, well, that, that's, that's mighty particular. That's arbitrary. But that's actually one of the points. God is omnipotent, omniscient, all-glorious. He's also just and he's righteous. He has every sovereign right to hand down arbitrary rules. He hands down none that are not in accord with his own character. And none that are given to us without an explanation of purpose. You can't have a flawless, in the sense of coming from the herd, coming from the flock, without obvious imperfection. You can't have a sacrifice without obvious imperfection. And the sacrifice be performed by a priest who does have an obvious imperfection. Now, you look at this and you say, well, this means that even those, many of those who would be, say, genetically qualified for the priesthood, aren't physically qualified for the priesthood. That's absolutely right. And you look at this and you go, this flies in the face of our sensibilities. And of course, it absolutely does. But hold that. Chapter 22, this is why it all flows together. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and to his sons, so that they abstain from the holy things of the people of Israel, which they dedicate to me, so that they do not profane my holy name, I am the Lord. Say to them, If any one of all your offspring throughout your generations approaches the holy things that the people of Israel dedicate to the Lord, while he has an uncleanness, because the physical uncleanness, an emission from the body or some other physical uncleanness, That person shall be cut off from my presence. I am the Lord. None of the offspring of Aaron who has a leprous disease or a discharge may eat of the holy things until he is clean. Whoever touches anything that is unclean through contact with the dead, or a man who has had an emission of semen, and whoever touches a swarming thing by which he may be made unclean, or a person from whom he may take uncleanness, whatever his uncleanness may be, the person who touches such a thing shall be unclean until the evening and shall not eat of the holy things until he has bathed his body in water. When the sun goes down, he shall be clean. And afterward he may eat of the holy things because they are his food. He shall not eat what dies of itself or is torn by beasts and so make himself unclean by it. I am the Lord. They shall therefore keep my charge lest they bear sin for it and die thereby when they profane it. I am the Lord who sanctifies them. Okay? We're just going deeper and deeper. We saw earlier in Leviticus that certain foods that had been sacrificed to the Lord were to become food for the priesthood. So it was to be set aside, and the part that was burned on the altar was burned, but the part that remained was to be given to the priests for their food, for their support. The, The priestly duties would keep them from flocks, Keep them from other responsibilities that would produce food. Instead, the food is to be given to them by the Lord as that which remains from the sacrifice, given with certain commands as to how they are to eat it. But now we're told that a priest who is unclean is not even to eat of that food which comes from the altar until the evening has come and he is bathed and he is clean. Now, there's something important to notice here, you'll notice that he doesn't have to go that long without eating. So, in other words, it doesn't endanger his health or his life. It is not actually understood as a punishment because there is every reason to believe that most of the disqualifying emissions have nothing to do with sin whatsoever, and that includes the emission of semen. It's just a natural thing. This is not presented as in any way something that is immoral. It is just unclean, just unclean. And so, the specificity of God to the priesthood comes right down to exactly how this is to be handled, and He is not to eat. Now, there are those who think that the prohibition against eating had at least a communal element because that would mean that He would be with the other priests and could thereby make them unclean. The point is, we don't actually need more than what we are given here in Scripture. It's just the way God has commanded it. In verse 10, a layperson shall not eat of a holy thing. No foreign guest of the priest or hired servant shall eat of a holy thing. But if a priest buys a slave as his property for money, the slave may eat of it, and anyone born in his house may eat of his food. If a priest's daughter marries a layman, she shall not eat of the contribution of the holy things. But if a priest's daughter is widowed or divorced and has no child and returns to her father's house as in her youth, she may eat of her father's food. Yet no layperson shall eat of it. And if anyone eats of a holy thing unintentionally, he shall add the fifth of its value to it and give the holy thing to the priest. They shall not profane the holy things of the people of Israel, which they contribute to the Lord, and so cause them to bear iniquity and guilt by eating their holy things. For I am the Lord who sanctifies them. So now, again, it just gets more complicated, but it follows the logic. So, the priests are allowed to eat of the food that remains from the sacrifice according to the detailed instructions of the Lord, but that does not apply to priests who are themselves unclean and need to be absent from that food until such time as in the evening they bathe and they are declared to be clean, then they may eat of it. No layperson, and this means from the other tribes of Israel, they they are forbidden from eating that food. And even if they accidentally eat it and find out later that they've eaten it, they have to add to their own sacrifice in in order to make compensation for even the accidental error of eating the food they later find out was food that had been consecrated to the Lord and belongs to the priests You have here who may eat at the priest's table. And that would include not a servant. And, And that means someone who, from another tribe in particular... Maybe serving the priest. But someone that is a slave he has bought for a price is a part of the family, is a part of the household. And remember, that's in a system which is not lifelong slavery, but it's the slavery that includes the jubilee. And uh, so, it, it's basically indentured servitude for a matter of time. But he's a part of the household. His own children become a part of the household. If the priest has a daughter who marries a layman outside, then she leaves the household, she cannot eat of the food, but if she is widowed and returns to be a part of her father's house, she may eat of it. And you're saying, couldn't we figure some of that out? And the answer is, no, absolutely not. God does not leave even such detailed issues to Israel's self-determination. Verse 17, and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons and all the people of Israel, and say to them, When anyone of the house of Israel or of the sojourners of Israel in Israel presents a burnt offering as his offering for any of their vows or freewill offerings that they offer to the Lord, if it is to be accepted for you, it shall be a male without blemish, of the bulls or the sheep or the goats. You shall not offer anything that has a blemish, for it will not be acceptable for you. And when anyone offers a sacrifice of peace offerings to the Lord to fulfill a vow or as a freewill offering from the herd or from the flock to be accepted. It must be perfect. There shall be no blemish in it. Animals blind or disabled or mutilated or having a discharge or an itch or scabs. You shall not offer to the Lord or give them to the Lord as a food offering. You may present a bull or a lamb that has a part too long or too short for a freewill offering, but for a vow offering, it cannot be accepted." Just imagine, I just have to stop this. I can remember reading this as a boy. First time I read through the scripture, and I'm in all this, and I'm in deep, and I'm not understanding much of what I'm reading. But I, you, know, you get to one of this, and you can think, okay, so you, you take a calf, you look at the calf and go, hmm, hmm, you got a scab. You're not going to be acceptable as a sacrifice. Okay, next calf. Calf comes up, big old black eyes looking at you. You look at him, and you go, Okay, one leg shorter than another. Well, you can be a certain kind of sacrifice, but you can't be a sacrifice for sin. And along comes the you know, next calf looking at you, all the legs are the same length, no scab, no imperfection. You'll do. And just notice how much time this is going to take. Notice how much intentionality it's going to take. This is all consuming. And you also notice why the repetition, and the repetition builds because we've not had this particular, we've had all the holiness unblemished, clean, perfect, but we've not had that extended to the length of the legs. No, we got to have this. Verse 26, and the Lord spoke to Moses saying, when an ox or a sheep or a goat is born, it shall remain seven days with its mother, and from the eighth day on, it shall be acceptable as a food offering to the Lord. But you shall not kill an ox or a sheep and her young in one day. And when you sacrifice a sacrifice of thanksgiving to the Lord, you shall sacrifice it so that you may be accepted. It shall be eaten on the same day. You shall leave none of it until morning. I am the Lord. So you shall keep my commandments and do them. I am the Lord, and you shall not profane my holy name, that I may be sanctified among the people of Israel. I am the Lord who sanctifies you who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God, I am the Lord. It's just an amazing, amazing passage. What what does this mean for us? Why, Why do we take such time word by word and verse by verse to go through Leviticus? Well, first of all, we need to know this. For one thing, remember that for Christians, this reminds us of what is fulfilled in Christ. So, When you say, well, this is Christ's atoning work, this is is Christ's work of obedience to the Father, this is Christ's Savior, Lord, yes, Mediator, what does that look like? It looks like this, only it looks like this perfect. When we look to the book of Hebrews, and when we come to the end of our study, we will wrap this up by looking at Leviticus and Hebrews and Romans together. But this just makes us look forward to Jesus, the great high priest, the perfect high priest, the mediator, remember what we're told in Hebrews, the mediator of a new and better covenant. So let's be honest. If you are Israel, you're privileged among all the peoples of the earth for having a covenant with the one true and living God, this sweet But the covenant the Father has made with us in Christ, the covenant of redemption, is infinitely superior to this. And that requires a priest who is infinitely superior to this. It requires a priesthood that is infinitely superior to this. It requires a mediator infinitely superior to this. And it just so happens that It is indeed the Lord Jesus Christ who is the mediator infinitely superior to this. Who, by the way, entered the the Holy of Holies one time and sacrificed not an animal, but shed his own blood for the remission of our sins. Never to be repeated, completely accomplished. When we are together next, we're going to take up the interesting question. So where is Israel now? What does this mean? How does this this tie? Because remember, and and this is is just a fascinating question. If you're not a Christian and you're just a historian and you're trying to deal with Israel, then one of the big questions comes, the big question is what happens after the destruction of the temple in AD 70? When the Romans destroyed the temple in AD 70... Roughly a generation after the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, the Scripture makes clear to us that the sacrificial system has been fulfilled. Christ is the mediator of the new and better covenant. Israel is commanded to believe in Christ. Some do. Most don't. But for about 43 years or so, they they just keep on... They just keep on doing the sacrifices until the Romans come and destroy the temple and then the sacrificial system comes to an end because there's nowhere to do the sacrifice because the tabernacle, having been succeeded by the temple, the, priest doesn't, the priesthood doesn't exist without the temple. Then, then the priesthood itself basically ceases, ceases to be relevant. And so one of the questions of modern religious scholars is, what in the world was Israel to do? Well, Israel was to have believed in Christ. But the Israel that remains trying to perform sacrifices finds that come to an end. And thus you have the shift to the Judaism we know today, which is generally referred to as rabbinical Judaism rather than priestly Judaism. And it's rabbinical Judaism dependent upon the rabbis trying to figure out how Judaism is to survive without what is central, the priesthood. We'll have to take that up later. At this point, the most important thing for us to know is that God loved Israel enough to make covenant with Israel as his own personal possession and to give them laws so sweet as this. But what is given to us in Christ is infinitely sweeter. And studying Leviticus helps us to understand what Christ has done for us and why his atonement is so sweet. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for all you've given us in your Word. Thank you for this this section, these two chapters of Leviticus. Father, may your Word do the work in our heart that only you will do by your Word to make not Israel more holy in this sense, but your church. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.